Hello Tawanto, here I come to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Welcome to RNZ Pacific's 80th anniversary of Golden Canal Campaign Pacific Waves Special. I'm Kuroi Hawkins. I'm here at Bloody Ridge in Guadalcanal. Thousands of people died here on these hills where the community have come out to greet us. And there are two monuments here, one's American and one's Japanese. As the national anthem of Solomon Islands is played at Bloody Ridge, soldiers salute and remember. Commemoration ceremonies packed with emotion have been taking place across the Solomon Islands capital, Honiara, marking the 80th anniversary of the Battle of Guadalcanal. Delegations from the United States, Japan, New Zealand and Australia have gathered to remember those who gave their lives during the World War II campaign. The Solomon Scouts and Coast Watchers have been honoured for laying their lives down for their country. Yes, me proud and yes me. I'm proud and very honoured because my grandfather fought at the time and he served his country, Solomon Islands, and he also served the Marines and the US Army. Sir Jacob Vuza, a Guadalcanal man who was caught and tortured by the Japanese for refusing to give up American positions, is famous for his actions. Bayoneted multiple times and left to die, Vuza escaped and warned the Americans of an impending attack which they were then able to stave off. His granddaughter, Regina Vuza, attended the ceremony accompanied by her daughter. I'm um, Regina Vuza. I'm born Ted She said she was nervous about the ceremony, but extremely proud to represent her grandfather. As many as 35,000 American and Japanese lives were lost. And no one, no one, can say for certain how many Solomon Islanders lost their lives when their home became a battlefield. U.S. Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman's father fought in the battle which began on August the 7th in 1942 when thousands of U.S. Marines launched a surprise attack on the Japanese who had a grip on the Solomon Islands. The campaign lasted until the 9th of February in 1943. This is how the British Pathé News reported on it. Both American and Japanese navies have powerful forces in the southern Pacific battle zone. These are Americans. Reinforcements plowing on to stiffen the attack and hold positions, one in Guadalcanal. Wendy Sherman's father fought as long as he could. Mal Sherman was among thousands of U.S. Marines who fought in the Battle of Guadalcanal. He enlisted two days after the attack on Pearl Harbor at all of 19 years old. The echo of World War II shaped and imprinted on those who fought. And it shaped me in return. I know he was wounded in action here on Guadalcanal and that eventually his wounds became infected with jungle rot. He became sick enough to be evacuated, first to New Zealand, where he always said the Kiwis took extraordinary care of him. It is intolerably hot and sticky here and it's hard to imagine what those on all sides went through in the jungles. But what is known is as many as three quarters of the thousands of deaths were from tropical diseases and starvation. This is the dreadful cost of war. Not only blood and treasure, but human souls. As we have lost the Guadalcanal generation to the passage of time, we have seen some around the world who seem to have forgotten the awful lessons learned here, or perhaps 
never took them to heart in the first place. Speaking at the Bloody Ridge ceremony, the site where one of the most brutal battles of World War II was fought, Wendy Sherman took a moment to address the many curious children from the surrounding communities who had come along with their parents for the event. She told them the story of Jacob Vuza, a Solomon Islands war hero, saying they should also be proud of the sacrifices made by their grandparents. In an isolated incident during a program on Monday morning, a media person with a Japanese delegation was stabbed with a pair of scissors by a local who was then detained by police. The incident took place as delegations gathered at the scene of some of the fiercest fighting in the war. Since then, a reconciliation ceremony has been held between the Japanese consular and the community and members of the Solomon Islands Visitors Bureau and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Police have yet to report if the attacker has been charged. New Zealand Minister for Defence, Penny Henare, led Aotearoa's delegation to the Solomon Islands. They're truly a special opportunity to reflect and remember those who served here on both sides. What I've found extremely humbling too is the recognition that's been acknowledged here for the people of the Solomon Islands, not just those who came here to fight, but also the recognition of the Solomon Island people. This reflected by Caroline Kennedy in her speech. Solomon Islanders risked their lives to support the Allied effort. Many joined in the fight, lending their superior knowledge of the local terrain and their expertise in jungle fighting. They stayed behind Japanese lines at personal risk to their own safety and that of their families. The information they gathered was invaluable to the Allied effort during the Guadalcanal campaign. During the Pacific campaign, my family and I owe a personal debt of gratitude to two Solomon Islander scouts, Yakugasa and Ironi Kumana, who saved my father's life. Thanks to them, he and his crew survived the sinking of PT-109 and were able to return home and eventually run for president. Caroline Kennedy says her father, John F. Kennedy's experiences here shaped him into the man and the leader he was. I translated for Caroline Kennedy as she presented gifts to the family she holds so dear to her heart. Um, this is a replica of the coconut shell that um, your father, grandfather, helped uh, carve my father. So it's a treasure for our family in Boston, and I want you to have a replica of it. Nana Vinar Pony Kwagui. He was a million to see You can hold everything, but I can give it to, maybe to you to hold for her. She would like to say something to you. Okay, great. Yeah. I'll translate. Okay, thank yeah. you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to meet you. And finally today I meet you. My, my father who rescued your father and because of that you're here today. That's right. That's right. Thank you. I'm so happy. I'm so happy. Her Excellency Caroline Kennedy, Thank you so much. A notable absence from all the commemoration events was the Solomon Islands Prime Minister Manasseh Songovare, despite his name appearing on the official program. 
Instead, the Solomon Islands government was represented by the Minister for Police and National Security, Anthony Veke. While Mr Songovare's absence raised some eyebrows during the early events in the day, RNZ Pacific has been told an older version of the program had been printed and the decision to assign the Minister for National Security was intentional in line with the theme of events. It's understood the Prime Minister still took part in bilateral meetings that took place alongside the commemoration events. RNZ Pacific has requested an interview with the Prime Minister multiple times, but we have not yet received a response. The situation is complicated by security issues in the country. Mr Songovari's government has come under a lot of criticism, both domestically and internationally, over some controversial policy decisions. These include the recent signing of a security agreement with China and a proposal to extend the term of parliament from four to five years. And it follows Prime Minister Manasseh Songovare making changes that have left the national broadcaster in a state of uncertainty. Uh, establishment by SIBC and even before SIBC today by Millicent Moore or another series whereby they can come some fella stories for you. This is Solomon Islands Broadcasting Corporation, SIBC Voice of the Nation. Celebrating 70 years of broadcasting, 1952 to 2022. In an exclusive interview with RNZ Pacific, the Chief Executive of the Solomon Islands Broadcasting Corporation, Johnson Honimai, says he's awaiting to see in writing what the government's intentions are for the future of the station, known more commonly by its acronym SIBC. The so-called Voice of the Nation made headlines after the Prime Minister Manasse Songovare revoked its status as a state-owned enterprise, saying its news and programs were unbalanced and divisive. Thank you, Thomas, for sitting down with the Mifala Law Pacific Waves, Johnson. So tell us, where do things stand at the moment? The Gazette came out on 24th of June, but so far, yet as the CEO of SIBC to receive anything in black and white as to what does that decision by cabinet means for the organization. I know my board has been to the office of the Prime Minister to get an explanation of um, uh, what uh, this decision entails. But as the CEO, Chief Executive Officer of the organization, I'm yet to, to receive anything. But since I have uh, resumed uh, duties after my leave on the 1st of August, I have gone out of my way to find information collected speeches, uh, statements, press conferences. And I am now at the stage that I'm clear on what it means up to now. It's basically business as usual. What it means, what the decision means is that I am no longer, or SIBC is no longer a state-owned enterprise under the SOE Act. I'm basically now operating under the SIBC Act, the Broadcast Ordinance. And, and, and maybe if you can expand a bit on, on that and just explain for us the, the differences between the two acts. Yes, the difference is that the, the, under the SOE Act, there is a couple of things that needs to be done. For example, the membership of the board. The organization had to put up uh, expressions of interest as to what, board members with what experience, what qualifications we need, and you have to apply for uh, membership of the board. That's one thing. And then, of course, the organization gets what they call a committee service obligation, yeah, which the government, it's an annual thing under. This is for programs, to cover programs that the, the station will run, and they don't have to charge. Like in the case of SIBC, we, we need to do tours 
to the provinces, to the communities, at least two or three annually. So CSO covers that. And of course, some other promotions that we do, but we don't charge for this organization. SIBC at the moment also runs commercial sponsored programs, advertising and all that. So the CSO covers that. Yeah. So that's one of the, the, the things that we have as the CSO. The other thing is that uh, we, 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 we still have the editorial independence that we have, even under the CSO, but that is under the SIBC Act. So under the SIBC Act, one of the clear things there is that the Prime Minister, as the Minister Responsible Broadcasting, appoints the board members. That's his prerogative under the SIBC Act. But under the SIBC Act, management has the, the editorial independence. Yeah. There is a clause in the SIBC Act, though, that gives the power to the Prime Minister, who is the Minister for Broadcasting, that he can call on the organization to withdraw discussions, program, or news item that he believes could be could cause some disability, some some disunity in in the communities. But at the same time, he needs to report to Parliament on his actions. So that's when we operate under the SIBC Act. Now, I must make it clear here that we've been operating under the SIBC Act even before independence. So it's business as usual now. But we are waiting on further explanations on what is in that decision uh, because we, as I said, we, I haven't received anything in black and white. Mm -mm. So just to clarify, like the biggest concern is that based on the Prime Minister's remarks about the station and, and SIBC needing to promote unity and not create divisions, is there any impact on your editorial operations at the moment? No, as I said, it's business as usual. Uh, my editor, News and Current Affairs, has the final say. And of course, my manager, uh, Radio Operations, has the final say on other content that uh, goes out uh, through uh, radio and, of course, our, our, our other platforms. And I don't, I haven't issued any directives as the CEO to ask my editor to run everything against me. No, it's it's uh, no no self censorship at the moment. Yeah, but as I, let me emphasize again, we'll see what will come out if they send me something in black and white, and then we will address it when we 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 come across it when we get it. Yeah, but at the moment, it's as I, I'm trying to explain this. It's business as usual. We will continue to do what we've been doing as professionals. But one thing I think this has uh, caused us to do is to do our work even more professionally, go up another step. Yeah, We need to balance our stories even better. Like We've been doing it, but we need to do it even better so that we, can, uh, we don't leave any room for any criticism at all. On the 1st of July, Solomon Islands reopened to the world. The two years it has been closed since the start of the pandemic has been hard on the hospitality industry. The owner of the King Solomon Hotel, where I'm staying, Sue Kennedy, says they were only able to keep all of their staff by cutting down on the number of days they worked. But one month on from the border reopening, there seems to be a lot of activity. Not just the changing skyline as massive sports infrastructure for next year's Commonwealth Games take shape, 
but also in the number of visitors, most of them on business trips in the country. The seclusion has also given rise to another kind of ingenuity. Wandering away from the commemorations for a bit, I met cocoa exporter James Kana, who is connecting rural farmers with high-end chocolatiers in the UK. Yeah, so uh, uh, my name is James. Um, I'm an entrepreneur, agribusiness. Uh, I'm uh, doing uh, a agribusiness uh, uh, in the islands. Uh, that's more in small Malaita, Malaita province. And uh, actually, we're now just, you know, at the Point Cruise area, just waiting to get some few of, of those uh, premium cocoa bags. So that's basically sun-dried uh, cocoa bags uh, that came from the farmers down in Small Malaita. And what do you do with them? So what I do is I uh, bring them here and then uh, we pack them up. So um, we have uh, buyers which we would be able to sell it. So the business is doing that for the farmer. So that's support for... Uh, the buyers who are based in Honyar, yeah. uh, but also we are now moving towards getting uh, uh, buyers out in the uh, export markets. Right. So this is what I'm basically yeah. doing for them, uh, yeah. trying to access to those markets, which is pretty much the, the most challenging thing for most of the farmers mm, here. Yeah. yeah, and is it is it um, like premium, uh, uh, is, you said copra, yeah? Uh, cocoa. Cocoa, sorry. Is it yeah. pr- so premium, the raw cocoa, are you downstreaming or anything like that? Yeah, so this, uh, the name premium goes to see that, you know, uh, cocoa beans are being uh, produced or processed from uh, high quality. Uh, so that means uh, when the cocoa beans harvested from the tree, it is being well cared for and delicately harnessed, managed. So that's basically the taken off from the pod and then crack it, and then that process will go to a fermentation. So the fermentation, after a couple of days, they'll go through a drying process. And so the drying, uh, the, the usual way of drying is like they do hot air dryers, and that's sometimes you smoke, which uh, gave, gave you that very smoky kind of taste, which is uh, not, good, not, right? not really good for quality. Hence, the price that you get will be uh, uh, not much good too. Whereas with the premium one, you get to sun-dry it and so use the heat and the natural uh, energy to actually heat the whole bean and then it's able to uh, dry it. And then that process gives you a bit much more mellow, uh, uh, nutty flavor, which uh, premium buyers, they would really want yeah. that taste. And are you using the, like, the, the, the solar plastic and that kind of stuff? Yes, so solar is the one that you use to produce uh, the drying process, but they use that UV plastic to put those cocoa beans inside. Yeah. And that process gives you probably a range between 40 to 50 degrees Celsius, uh, on a very hot day, yeah. so that's uh, it's pretty much the same as when you're using the hot, uh, yeah. the hot air dryer. Yeah, I can feel the heat today. It must work. <laughs> um, with, with the finding markets, it, it, how 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 does that go around? How do you find markets for these products? Yes. So uh, recently, we are also engaged in a uh, initiative uh, which we call the Less Than Container Load or LCL for short. It is a project that is supported by the Australian and New Zealand governments through the Pharma Plus program. Uh, we try to use technology and working together with all the partners to consolidate uh, and share volume in a container load. So the problem here is you have a whole lot of stack of empty containers. So you can see, you know, those depots are just, you know, filled with empty containers. 
So, so that means is uh, we have five containers coming in uh, as being imported, but there's only one container going out as full. That's pre-COVID. Now with COVID and a lot of things come up, uh, it has affected exports. And we, with a lot of those developments happening now, uh, that's pretty much, uh, you know, builds more empty containers. And uh, most of those containers are also shipped out empty, which is, I would say, inefficient. Uh, and, uh, it, uh, and, you know, this uh, whole carbon miles, you know, have an impact on the climate, that's not really good. So what we do is how can we use the innovation of the, uh, the digital uh, uh, platform so we're able to develop that through the support and then how we can call, uh, uh, pull together all the different uh, farmers, exporters and the consolidators to actually get to the market. Actually, for you know, the premium market, it's quite really hard to send out because uh, all these uh, producers here are very small. So for us, it's basically how can we share together. And so by sharing, you, you can able to uh, share the cost, but also at the same time fill container that meets the minimum volume to actually send out to the market. And so uh, we managed to get our first container out in May of this year. We've basically uh, trialed it, and uh, I would say the, uh, it was a successful one. Uh, our market is uh, in UK. It's a very boutique market. Uh, it goes to two high-end boutique uh, chocolate makers, uh, Fire Tree uh, Chocolate and uh, Palm Street uh, Chocolate. And they both uh, produce to high-end uh, uh, market like the Harrods uh, shop uh, in UK, which, you know, it's quite a big market there. Uh, and uh, that signifies that they are very positive in terms of getting our premium products from the Solomon. Uh, our consolidators here are uh, Diana Yates from uh, Catliro. Uh, they able to have orders that uh, uh, the UK market required, but also David Cable is one of our uh, star uh, cocoa producer and exporter here in the Solomon. So um, having to build more of that exposure, we were able to uh, build on that a success to get more to the other market. Mm. So actually now we are looking at three more containers. So uh, our next container is looking at to go to Auckland in New Zealand. So that's uh, pretty much a big uh, 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 work for us to actually try to target because if it's a successful, we're able to get more of the shipments with a regular flow so we can get more of our premium cocoa beans to the New Zealand market at the affordable price, not just for uh, the buyers, but also getting the sharing, the cost for the consolidators and the producer and the exporter uh, with all the issues around with shipping and logistics and freight and stuff like that. Also in the midst of all this COVID-19, so yeah. If anyone wants to check out your work and, and, and get involved, uh, where can they find you guys? Yeah, so if uh, they want to contact us, we are uh, on, uh, online. So uh, it's called UNU's Uno Agribusiness Group. We, we have a website, but also Facebook page that uh, you, you can have a look at it. And, and how do you spell that? Uh, it spells uh, started with U. U uh, U N E Usu Uno, which starts with uh, uh, a represent uh, name of the the village, uh, but also the the location of where the farms are in Small Malaita. Yeah. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you.
The ingenuity and passion that James Conner has for his work is something I've been hearing more and more of walking around the capital. And it's encouraging to see that underneath all of the negativity that seems to surround Solomon Islands on the international stage, the people here are still as genuine and welcoming as ever. It's only been three years since I was last home, but so much has changed. And even though the borders have reopened, the road to recovery has just begun. Thank you to Maswaniara. I'll look you back next time. More.